Hi, Redeemer. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed singing the songs together today, this uh, Easter morning. Uh, I would like to begin uh, with prayer. Uh, Father, I thank you so much for your word and that we get to read it together. I thank you for the people of Redeemer Church and their hearts to serve one another. As we call around, we know that your spirit's at work because they desire so much, not only to be with one another, but to continue serving one another during this very strange season. Would you watch over them and protect them? Would you please fill them with the knowledge of your truth that they may discern good from evil during these days? And I pray that you would give them great encouragement through the word preached now. And I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reading 2 John 12 this week, uh, where he says, Though I have much to write to you, I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. And I have to say, throughout this pandemic, I have felt what John must have have felt there uh, when he wrote it. I'm sending you messages by video and and email, but I I long to see you face to face so that our joy might be complete. Happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Uh, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Often when uh, when we speak of the resurrection, we rightly emphasize the fact of Jesus's Resurrection. Uh, we defend its historicity. We, we have the records of, of reliable eyewitness testimony. Uh, we also might clarify what Jesus' resurrection is. It, it's new bodily life after a period of being dead. It's, it's no mere resuscitation. Jesus rose with a transformed physical body, a body no longer subject to death and decay. He rose never to die again. He possesses what Hebrews 7 calls the power of an indestructible life. The power of an indestructible life. No president, no religious leader, no sports hero, no significant other, no mentor, no helper for you. Nobody can make such a claim. The grave terminates the life of all such people that we may depend on or or look to for inspiration. Only one man entered death and then rose triumphant, Jesus Christ. He possesses the ultimate trump card, okay? The power of an indestructible life. And those are the facts that, that we might explain to people. But what do those facts mean? What what does that truth mean? What what significance does it have for you uh, and for the world? Well, Hebrews 7 helps answer that question in part. It does so by explaining what Jesus' resurrection means in terms of priesthood. Priesthood. Some, Some of us hear priest, and and because of our background, uh, perhaps various... Uh, modern-day uh, priestly figures come, come to mind. 
But in the Old Testament, the priests most familiar to us are likely those from the tribe of Levi. The Levites were set apart to perform special duties, especially the sacrifices, and those sacrifices helped Israel understand that they had a great need. To be with God, they needed a go-between. They needed someone who could enter God's presence for them and make the proper sacrifice. You know, their sins had separated them from God, but with priests that were approved by God, then they could be helped into God's presence. They could then relate to God. However, less familiar to us is another priest in the Old Testament, this fellow named Melchizedek. And uh, we'll find today uh, that this Melchizedek, uh, that, that the piece he plays in God's story signified a, a better priesthood was coming than that which was found in the law. God has given us a, a priest to achieve what the law could never achieve. Okay, He has given us a priest we can depend on forever because he is forever. But don't take my word for it. Let's read the text uh, section by section. We're going to walk through its main movements here in Hebrews 7, and there are three movements, okay? The first movement is this. The writer introduces Melchizedek. The writer introduces Melchizedek. You know, now, we heard his name uh, once before. We, we kind of shook his hand in chapter 5, verse 6 and 10. Uh, now we're going to get to know him more uh, fully. And verses. Uh, let's begin with verses 1 to 3. He says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham, apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Or some translations there have for all time. Melchizedek appears only twice in the Old Testament, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. In Genesis 14, you've got these four kings and, and they come over here and, and they defeat these other five kings. And, and when they do, they, they capture a fellow named Lot, who's Abraham's nephew. So they take Lot away. And then Abraham gets these 318 men who are trained for war. And, and he goes over here and he defeats these four kings and he, and he takes the spoil and he, and he rescues Lot. Uh, well, one of these original kings... The, the king of Sodom, he comes and finds Abraham and after, that, after all that, and, and he comes to work a deal with, with Abraham. But right in the middle of this deal, Melchizedek pops up. I mean, you, you've heard nothing about this guy before. The text just says, and Melchizedek, this would be Genesis uh, 14, uh, that it says, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, 
brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And that's it. And, and that's, all, that's all we get of Melchizedek there. And then we're back to the king of Sodom. Now, the king of Sodom becomes a foil to Melchizedek. He's trying to work a deal with, with Abraham, and Abraham rejects it. By contrast, Abraham willingly gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Okay? If, if this were a cartoon at this moment, you'd have a big red arrow pointing down over, over, over Melchizedek's head. I mean, I mean, who is this king, right? He also serves as a priest. He serves the God of Abraham. He advances the promise by blessing Abraham. And, and what a unique name he has, Melchizedek. Right? It, it means king of righteousness. And then you've got this Salem here, shalom, uh, it means peace, wholeness, right? Everything rightly ordered beneath the Lord. He rules the city of peace. And then and Abraham also, he honors Melchizedek's priesthood. He gives him a tenth of everything. So who is this man, you wonder? He, he looks, he is pretty significant in such a, a short amount of verses. He also, uh, Hebrews brings out, he also lacks a priestly lineage. He lacks a priestly lineage. Verse 3 says that he's without father or mother or genealogy. Some have taken that uh, to mean Melchizedek must have been a divine figure, but there's, there's nothing in Genesis that suggests he's divine. Moreover, the focus of Hebrews 7 is a human priesthood, and as we'll soon see, Jesus himself not being from priestly stock. Uh, so the key to understanding him being without father and without mother is, is found in the next word, without genealogy. Right? Not meaning a human genealogy, period, but a priestly one, uh, a priestly genealogy, one that, that mattered in terms of priesthood. His priestly lineage isn't traceable. It's, it's non-existent in, in Scripture. Moreover, his priesthood was perpetual. His priesthood was perpetual. It kept going. It says, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Some have taken that to mean Melchizedek is a manifestation of, of the pre-incarnate Christ. You know, if he, if he is forever, they, they argue, uh, it, then it's only fitting that, that he's Christ. He must be Christ himself. But that's not quite accurate, uh, I, I believe. Um, yes, God the Son is eternal, uh, certainly, but, but the text is, is very clear here. Uh, it says there at the end of verse 3, Melchizedek only resembles the Son of God. He resembles the Son of God. That's, that differs from saying that he is the Son of God. It, it's better to read these words in the context of the Levitical priesthood Again, Melchizedek's priesthood didn't have a, a starting point, say, at, at age 25, and a stopping point at age 50 like the other priests. You can find this in Numbers 8, verse 23 to 26. As long as Melchizedek lived, his priesthood kept going. It was perpetual. It was 
for all the time that he lived. It didn't have a stopping point. And that's why verse 8 will later contrast Melchizedek with the Levites. The Levites represent a dying priesthood, a mortal one. Melchizedek, on the other hand, he represents the living one, right? His kept going, unlike theirs. And in this respect, I think Psalm 110 becomes another, the other significant piece in this, in this story. If if Melchizedek's priesthood was of the sort that kind of ended, then how could Psalm 110 speak of somebody else eventually rising after the order of Melchizedek and taking it on forever, in a sense, in an abiding sense? When he reads, when the writer reads Genesis 14 in light of Psalm 110, he can't help but see the ongoing nature of Melchizedek's priesthood. As long as he lived, it went on and on and and on. And this anticipated another whose priesthood would go on and on and on, but in a far greater way. I, I am getting ahead of myself, though. So for now, let's Let's, uh, let's make one further note in verse 3. Melchizedek foreshadows the Savior. Melchizedek foreshadow, foreshadows the Savior. Look again at the end of verse 3. But resembling the Son of God. A better translation is this. Having been made similar to the Son of God. Having been made similar to the Son of God. You you hear that? Having been made. Somebody is working here. Somebody outside Melchizedek is working here. Somebody brought Melchizedek into being and then deliberately made him similar to the Son of God. That someone, of course, is God. Right? God raised up Melchizedek. God made him a priest king. God did it before the law was ever given. He gave him the name and the role. He did everything here to paint a picture of the coming Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay? So this plan of God was already in place that he would one day send his son... And so he's crafting everything back here to point forward to that day when he brings his son in reality. Okay? And that has huge implications for the way you read Genesis. Right? <laughs> everything God orchestrates in his grand story of saving us has Jesus as the end goal, including this mysterious man named Melchizedek. Now, before he completes that connection to Jesus, uh, he, he must tell us more about Melchizedek's own greatness. Melchizedek's own greatness. And that's the second movement that we, we come to here. Melchizedek is greater than Levi's house and even greater than Abraham. Okay? Look at verse 4. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. 
That's the first reason why Melchizedek is superior to Levi. Abraham. Abraham, the father of Levi, paid tithes to Melchizedek. Now, under the law, the the Levites received tithes from from the people, right? They didn't get the land inheritance, so they had to receive tithes to to be sustained from the people. But even they were but one tribe among other sons of Abraham. And of all all the people who are truly great in the Old Testament, I mean, Father Abraham, he tops them all in terms of Judaism, right? He, he had the promises, and yet, and yet, Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham. Okay, he'll go on to say in verse 10, if you drop your eyes down, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. If he's Abraham's superior, then he's especially Levi's superior who is in Abraham's loins, okay? That's, that's his reasoning here. Now, see if this diagram uh, up on the screen, see if this diagram helps you kind of sort it out so uh, you see there that you have the, the Levites and, and Aaron's house within uh, the Levites. And then they receive tithes from, from other tribes. Uh, all of them belong to Abraham. And Abraham then paid tithes to Melchizedek, who wasn't numbered among Levi's descendants. Okay? Receiving the tithes from Abraham reveals that Melchizedek was superior in blessing Abraham. Okay, his second reason for Melchizedek's greatness over Levi is found in verse 8. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Okay, that reiterates what we covered in verse 3. Melchizedek's priesthood is one that continues, okay? It, it's perpetual, ongoing. Unlike Levi's priesthood, which is a, a dying one, Melchizedek's priesthood lives. In other words, it, it carries on. It, in that sense, uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's ongoing in, in, in this live. That's what the living terminology means here. So he's superior to Levi in that, the, that he receives tithes from Abraham, Levi's father. He's also superior in that his priesthood is perpetual, okay? It's, it's of an ongoing nature. Now, having established Melchizedek's own greatness, we're now prepared further for the connection to Jesus' priesthood, okay? Remember, Hebrews does not reveal Jesus' glory by uh, putting down persons, putting down Old Testament persons and, and shadows, Hebrews actually develops how great they truly were, okay? And, and he wants you to sense the greatness of, of how this king was also a priest and, and how great he was compared to 
Abraham, and he wants you to sense the greatness of how peculiar it was to be a priest and yet have no priestly lineage, and how great it was to have this long priesthood that endured all his, his life. That, that's all really there, and it's all really great. You should be able to read your Bible and say, wow, this Melchizedek is something else. But it's all there to then say, you see how much your Bible makes of Melchizedek? You see how great this man was? Oh, and and right you are. He was very great. But you know, even Melchizedek pointed to someone greater. And Melchizedek's glory doesn't hold a candle to Jesus' glory. That's the type of argument that, that Hebrews makes. It's done it with angels. It's done it with, uh, with Adam. It's done it with Moses. It did it with Joshua. And now he's, he's on to, the, to Aaron and now Melchizedek, right? They're all there. They're great in their own respects. But none of them hold a candle to Jesus' glory. So this brings us to movement three. Jesus' priesthood is greatest of all. Jesus' priesthood is greatest of all. Let's read verses 11 to 19. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Aaron was... From the Levites, remember. Verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And that's where we'll end today. We'll cover the rest of this third movement uh, next time we're in Hebrews. But we're getting to the other place now where Melchizedek's name appears in the Old Testament, Psalm 110. Okay, Psalm 110 is a psalm of David. Now, there's others out there that are, that are skeptical of that, but I'm going with Jesus on Psalm 110 being a psalm of David. It was Jesus, after all, in Luke 20, verses 41 to 44, who asks the Pharisees, he says, uh, you know, how can they say that the Christ, or the Messiah, right, our Savior, how how can they say that that the Christ is, is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's Psalm 110. David, Jesus says, David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? In other words, Psalm 110, according to Jesus, brought together two things about the future Messiah. Uh, He would be both the, the son of David and the Lord or the king who who shared Yahweh's throne and authority. Very well, pretty straightforward. But then, Psalm 110, then it catches us by surprise in verse 5. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, how would the coming son king in David's line also be a priest, right? David was from the tribe of Judah. Hebrews 7 is quite right. It's it's raising the tension when it says, no one from Judah ever served at the altar, right? In connection with Judah, Moses said nothing about priests. The king was to come from Judah. Priests come from Levi, and, and and they shall always be this way, right? It seems as you're going through the Old Testament. So how could this be? In connection with Judah, Moses said nothing about priests. What then becomes of Jesus, right? As David's son, he's from Judah. Priests come from Levi, not Judah. Does that mean Jesus' priesthood is illegitimate? Right, you could see a Jew raising that objection, right? Couldn't you? As they're experienced, Christians are experiencing persecution from the Jews, and the Jews come in and say, come on, guys. I mean, Jesus, really? I mean, he seems pretty illegitimate. Where is his priestly lineage, right? How can Jesus help you, Christian, if he's not from priestly stock? I mean, didn't God say so himself in the law? You can see how the, how the arguments would go. Ah, hmm. But then they could respond. The Christian could then respond and say, ah, yes, you're right. You're right. God did say so. But you know, God also spoke elsewhere in Psalm 110. Jesus' priesthood is connected with someone who is always superior to Levi. Haven't you read your Bibles about Melchizedek, right? This this is the kind of discussion they'd be having. Psalm 110 anticipated Jesus' greater priesthood all along, and that becomes the turning point for the writer of Hebrews. He reads the law, right? Earlier he he read Genesis 14 in light of Psalm 110. Now he's reading the law in light of Psalm 110, and he's putting the storyline together, and he says, aha, if perfection was attainable through this priesthood back here under the law, why does Psalm 110 promise another priest after the order of Melchizedek? Conclusion, perfection was never possible under the law. That's the conclusion he draws. Perfection awaited the work of a superior priest who would last forever. How do we know that Jesus is that priest? Resurrection, the power of an indestructible life, which he develops in the verses that follow. Okay? But if we go back a little, when it says perfection, think in terms of everything necessary to make you whole in God's presence. Everything that you need to become whole 
in the presence of God. That's what the idea of perfection here is talking about. And it's saying the law could never do that for you. That's what verse 19 says very plainly. The law only exposes people for what they really are. They are guilty. They are rebels. They are sinners. They are law breakers. And that includes all of us. You see, this highlights our great need for a Savior. The law only exposes us for what we really are, rebels against God. Every year, right, in Israel, every year the priests kept offering the sacrifices for sins, the people's sins and their own sins, but never did those sacrifices actually take away sins. Hebrews 9.9 says the law couldn't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The law only kept declaring us guilty. Chapter 10, verse 1, adds that the law could never make perfect those who draw near to God. There's always this reminder of sin under the law, and sin separates us from God. Well, what Hebrews is pointing out is that Jesus comes to change all that. (laughs) Jesus comes to keep the law fully for for you and for me. Everywhere that, that we disobeyed God's law, everywhere where we broke the law, Jesus obeyed the law for us. Jesus comes to offer the better sacrifice, right? He never breaks the law. That makes him the unblemished one. He, but he, he offers the better sacrifice. He lays his own life down in our place. His blood actually atones for our sin. Through his death, God judges our sins in Jesus, and he takes our sins away in Jesus. His work actually perfects our consciences such that we need not fear to enter God's presence now. We can come into God's presence with confidence as as true worshipers. When the law declares us guilty, Jesus' blood declares us forgiven. Perfection couldn't come by Aaron's priesthood. It had to come by another way. And that way he's saying, has come in Jesus. He opened the way to God. He introduces the better hope through which we can now draw near to God. Like Melchizedek, Jesus didn't become a priest on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. But far greater than Melchizedek, what does verse 16 say? Jesus became a priest by the power of an indestructible life. He became a priest by the power of an indestructible life. He was not, he did not become a priest by bodily descent. He became a priest by the power of an indestructible life. When God raised Jesus from the dead, it was as if God swearing his oath, you are my priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Not by lineage, but by oath and resurrection is Jesus announced as the priest, the true and better priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
God raised Jesus from the dead, proving that Jesus was the righteous one, after all, and that he was blameless. He did not die for his own sins. He died for the sins that we had committed. By virtue of Jesus' resurrection, Jesus is forever. His priesthood is an enduring one, like Melchizedek's was. See, this is where the typology comes in. The, the type, Melchizedek was a type pointing to the, great, the greater, the fulfillment, right? He was the shadow. Jesus is the substance. He was like, it was, his priesthood is, is, an, is an enduring one, like Melchizedek's was, but in a far greater way, Jesus has now put on immortality, right? His glorified body is never going to die. His priest, and that means his priesthood is going to go on and on and on and on into eternity because Jesus is forever, okay? Nothing can change his finished work. Okay, so, so to summarize then where we've been, Jesus' priesthood is greatest of all because he is the substance, he's the substance the shadows pointed to. Melchizedek was pointing to Jesus all along. Also, Jesus actually attains perfection for us. He opens the way for us to draw near to God. He is the ultimate and the only go-between, right? No one enters God's presence apart from trusting in his priestly work. And he has the power, it says, of an indestructible life, which means his priesthood is forever. And what that means for us then is, well, a whole bunch of things, which we'll get to as we keep going through, uh, through the chapter 10 on, on Jesus' priesthood, but a few, just a few, we'll scratch the surface here, uh, would go something like this. All right, number one, Jesus' priesthood helps us understand how the Bible fits together. When, when we see this development here in Hebrews, you can almost see how he's piecing together the, the Bible in the, the Old Testament. Jesus, and what we're seeing here is that Jesus is the goal of the whole Old Testament. It is very explicit. God made Melchizedek similar to the Son of God. He made this historical figure and then he inspired the writings about him to point us forward to Jesus. Even the way that he relates to the law helps us to see the temporary nature of the Mosaic covenant, right? It was never meant to perfect the worshiper. It was always pointing forward, always being that tutor until Jesus Christ came, always, uh, always uh, waiting for our true Savior. But the Jews often missed it, and it led many of them to reject Jesus. And even some of the Christians seem to be starting to question whether it's okay to go back to to Judaism. And, and Hebrews has come and say, what are you doing? Do not miss this greatness of Jesus. Right? No passage of Scripture has been fully understood until it has been read in light of God's fuller and climactic revelation in Jesus Christ. Take that to your quiet time in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Ask, how does this word relate to Jesus, his person, 
his cross? What is it teaching me about his resurrection life? What, how does his reign fit into this passage or his return? Only then will we see and know God truly as he's revealed himself in all of Scripture and in Jesus. And that leads us to something else that's implied in verse 12. Uh, Jesus' priesthood means there's a change in the law. Jesus' priesthood means there's a change in the law. The Levitical priesthood and the law of Moses go together. If there's a change in the priesthood, which there was in Jesus, it just said so, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. The law still functions in our lives as, as we read it, it. It functions as prophecy and as wisdom, right? It, it, it points us forward to Jesus and it teaches us about God's character. So it's good and holy and right to, to meditate and dwell uh, on, 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 upon the law. But as a covenant, as a covenant, the law of Moses does not govern the church. Jesus inaugurated a new covenant, and that new covenant now regulates the church. And we understand how it regulates the church as as the apostles reflect on the the Old Testament in light of Jesus' person and work. Okay? Now, knowing this is, is super important, and it will not only teach you how to apply the law, uh, it will also guard you from turning the law I mean, it will also guard you from turning to the law for your right standing with God. Right? If if you try to relate to God through the law, the law is always going to condemn you. The law is always going to leave you guilty. It's Christ who saves, and so we have to continue to come to Christ. You must relate to God through Jesus to have your conscience cleansed and your guilt truly removed before God. Also, to return to the law as our guide would be to return to something weak and useless. That's what he calls it in, uh, in uh, verse, nine, uh, verse 18, the end of verse 18, because of its weakness and uselessness. Right? The law made nothing perfect. Only Jesus can. So turn to him when you relate to God. Moreover, this will guard us as a church, it will guard us from practices that revert backwards to living under the old covenant forms. Okay? That's that's why we don't go. That's why Redeemer, we Ben and Dale and Wes and I and, and Trey, we are not your priests. Okay? And and, and, you, and you do not go to an earthly priest, to have your sins absolved, right? They're already forgiven in Christ. We don't uh, pour out blood at an altar or, or bring, bring some bread and, and, and wine to, to some, to some uh, altar because the perfect and true sacrifice has happened in the Lord Jesus Jesus' blood sufficiently cleansed our sins and and satisfied God's wrath. This is why this building, you can't see it, but I'm in it. This building is not a sanctuary. This building is not the house of God. Jesus 
replaced the temple. <laughs> Jesus, repla- Jesus is the true house of God. And, and we are now Jesus the temple, the true temple. And God dwells in us, brothers and sisters. You, <laughs> as, a, as a people, are the household of God. He dwells in you. That, that's why also uh, this, this idea, that's why our Sabbath observance is not Saturday or Sunday or any one day out of seven, right? We observe the Sabbath by setting our hope in the eternal rest of the new heavens and earth. And all of these things you, 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 you find as you, as you see how the apostles are putting together the, the Old Testament. Next, Jesus' priesthood also means we can now draw near to God. We can draw near to God. When you celebrate Easter, right, one of the things you should be celebrating today is that you can draw near to God, right? After this whole discourse on, on Jesus' priesthood, it actually lasts until chapter 10. After this whole discourse, chapter 10, verse 22 concludes this way, let us therefore draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The world does not have access to God. But for those in Christ, you do have access. Okay? No other priest or religious figure on earth can give you that, but Jesus can, right? This is part of the significance of the resurrection. Anybody, we can go to anybody uh, in the world. We can go to our, you can go to your neighbors right now. They're looking for hope. They don't know how to, whether God listens to them, and you can go to them and share that. I, I know the way to God. I know the way to God. Jesus opened it for you through his death. And he's sitting as a priest in heaven. And you can come to God through him right now. You need help? He's got you. In Christ, you have a new relationship to God. So draw near to him. In the Old Testament, drawing near involves standing before the Lord's presence. Often it's used... Uh, of the priests who would, who would go in and serve in God's presence and make their sacrifices. In chapter 4, verse 16, which we saw last uh, a while back, it relates to coming and asking God for help in times of need. So think of prayer, concerted efforts in prayer here. The point is that you no longer need to go to a building somewhere else to experience God's presence, right? He is present to help right where you are through Jesus. In whatever situation, you can draw near to Him. You can ask Him for help. Even when you don't know what to say, Jesus does. He's interceding for you right now, Romans 8 says. When you're at work, when you're making copies, uh, when you're typing on the computer or or flying a helicopter or designing a, a web page, or when you're caring for sick children or changing dirty diapers, or when you're finishing up homework or entering class for a test, right? or when you're, when you're designing buildings or water treatment plants or fighting fires, no matter where the Lord has you serving right now, you can draw near to serve God in every one of those circumstances. And this becomes your spiritual worship. Why? Because Jesus is your high priest, 
He opened the way. Everything you now do is before His presence and done with His help. Think about that when the alarm goes off at 6.30 and you're going, oh, i got to go to work again. Yeah, in God's presence, thanks to Jesus. Jesus' priesthood also means that you have a forever helper when all other helpers don't last. The Lord gives us many good helpers in life, many, many. Perhaps you've been helped by a special mentor at one point, and, and they really impacted your life in, in important ways, but then they moved away or, or they suddenly died. Perhaps you found great help and comfort in a spouse, but then cancer takes them away. She was your helper, and you treasured her for those years. Or perhaps your spouse was once a help to you, but now they're, they're no longer walking with Jesus. They've disappointed you. Perhaps they've, they've hurt you. Perhaps you've found help from a particular Bible teacher for a long while, but then all of a sudden, he abandons Jesus. He turns away. He walks, walks away from Christianity. We've all turned to somebody for help. Maybe it was a parent, one of our, our parents. We've all turned to, to somebody for help. But the truth is that any one of their help can't last forever. It's a gift when they were there, but then all of a sudden they will be gone. There's only one helper who lasts forever, Jesus Christ. When all other helpers are gone, he will still be there for you. So make sure you're, you're trusting in him Ultimately, Jesus' priesthood is forever, and that means He alone is your forever help. He has the power of an indestructible life. And speaking of that indestructible life, Jesus' priesthood also means that we have an, un an indestructible hope. As, as Christians, we have an indestructible hope because we have an indestructible priest. <laughs> A priest who's also a king, right? Remember Melchizedek's role? He was, he was king of Salem, king of peace. Well, Jesus is king of the new Yeru Shalem. Shalem. He rules the true city of peace. And that city will one day cover the earth. If Jesus has the power of an indestructible life, no one can keep him from bringing that city on earth as it already is in heaven. So keep your eyes on him, beloved. There's, there's so much cert uncertainty in our culture right now and, and in, in these circumstances. There's so much going on in society that's being wrecked by wars and, and, and rumors of wars. There's even division among, among Christians over important issues and, and how best to execute 
this or that and, and how best to care and, and, and bring forth justice. Wherever such turmoil and division prospers, you can guarantee that the people in those circles are spending more time at each other's throats than they are at the throne of the great high priest who is also the king of peace. But even this turmoil that we see in the world, even this confusion will not thwart Jesus' purpose. He has the power of an indestructible life. When it's all said and done, He will rule forever. Jesus will make us whole. And Jesus will rightly order everything in creation beneath the Lord's rule. He is the true King of peace, sworn into His office as priest king after the order of Melchizedek and all because he has the power of an indestructible life. So set your confidence in him, beloved. Happy Easter. Jesus is risen.